You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 16 of the series Spyclopedia, number 1, William Stevenson, part 5, or Stevenson's Bastards. Today I'm recording from Chateau de Castelnau. So, years after the end of World War II, in 1953, William Stevenson was living in Jamaica, in, you guessed it, Montego Bay, where he was approached by an old friend, John Archer Dunn, who represented the Diamond Syndicate. They were worried about the theft of diamonds from South African mines and the smuggling of those diamonds into the United States. Dunn was authorized to offer Stevenson the sum of one million pounds sterling, along with a blank check to be filled in with any sum Stevenson wished, if Stevenson could stop the leaks. At the time, the leaks amounted to £100,000 of diamonds each month. Now, the Diamond Syndicate, not known for their generosity, gave him a unique offer showing how much faith they had in him. But Stevenson turned it down immediately, saying, I have just emerged from underground activities in the light of business, and there I intend to remain. I don't think you realize what an octopus the syndicate is grappling with. This is not a local affair confined to Africa. It is operated by an internal murder gang which has worldwide ramifications. I am not afraid of it, but I have had enough of that kind of job and would like to have my time now to sit in the sun. A chilling response. As to what Stevenson was referring to, why, that just might be a bit of projection on his part. I don't know. We will see. Now, the syndicate eventually hired Percy Silito, former director general of MI5, for the job. The story was covered in Ian Fleming's non-fiction work, The Diamond Smugglers, and then fictionalized the story in his James Bond novel, Diamonds Are Forever. As I mentioned in the beginning of this series, Ian Fleming considered William Stevenson to be the real-life version of James Bond. Let's just jump right into things. Throughout this series on William Stevenson, I've made many references to many times he leaked stories to the press. To avoid being overly repetitive, I've excluded many, many other times that Stevenson worked hand-in-hand with the press to try to advance British interests. But there are many, many, many times that he would do this. William Stevenson was close friends with many journalists, as of course was Alan Dulles, James Jesus Angleton, William Colby, and so on. The spooks loved to hang out with journalists, and journalists seemed to love to hang out with spies. And, lest we romanticize spies too much, imagine how insufferable that must be to hang out with journalists. So, William Stevenson was particularly close to Walter Lippmann of the New York Herald Tribune. The New York Herald Tribune was, I think, his go-to favorite newspaper, William Stevenson was also friends with Leonard Leons of the New York Post. He was also friends with Walter Winchell, who was a slimy gossip columnist at William Randolph Hearst's New York Daily Mirror, and Drew Pearson, whose life appears to be so full of weird resonances that my internal Geiger counter for spook stuff is ticking off the charts. Now these two guys, Winchell and Pearson, appear to have been running quite the operations. Winchell's operation was 
a lot of the typical like gossip stuff that you might expect. But let's talk about Pearson, who's even crazier. So a short rundown of Drew Pearson's life includes attending Phillips Exeter Academy, then Swarthmore, then quote-unquote serving with the American Friends Service Committee in Serbia during 1919-1921, wink-wink, then marrying a Polish countess, teaching industrial geography at Columbia University, then just walking right into a high-level career in journalism, where he was aggressive and reportedly wrote mean, nasty reporting, where he would combine factual reporting with rumors and innuendo. Now, of course, I do a lot of innuendo myself, but most of my targets are dead, to be fair. And of course, I'm not passing myself off as a journalist. So a, a fellow journalist, Jack Schaefer, called Drew Pearson one of the scuzziest journalists to ever write a story. Now, so far, this just sounds like a rich guy with spooky connections who's a mean journalist, right? We'll check this out. Quote, Washington, D.C. was Drew Pearson's beat. Cabinet ministers, senators, and congressmen were his friends. His methods of extracting information and rewarding his informants were similar to those employed by Walter Winchell. Drew Pearson had a marked indifference to the feelings of others and was quite unperturbed if one of his disclosures cost a friend or acquaintance his job. Now here's where it gets really crazy. Drew Pearson kept extensive records of the misdemeanors of important public men, mainly of politicians in Washington, D.C. He knew which senators and representatives had been financially taken care of by big business lobbyists and which had been unfaithful to their wives. Moreover, he was said to be adroit at hinting that he would not use the information if they made a point of telling him now and again what was going on in their offices or departments. In other words, leveraging information to get more information. For example, he was said to have in his possession an affidavit signed by a railroad sleeping car conductor vouching for the alleged homosexual activities of a well-known Washington, D.C. political figure. We have to keep in mind that H. Hyde, H. Montgomery Hyde was more or less sympathetic to Drew Pearson, so this is probably understating things a bit. Walter Winchell and Drew Pearson were both basically running blackmail and intelligence rings, albeit of the kind that trades more in information than cash. What's really interesting is that Drew Pearson's ring was in Washington, D.C. Now, that doesn't happen without some oversight and protection. Now, regarding the oversight, Walter Winchell and Drew Pearson were both close personal friends with J. Edgar Hoover. They traded information with him to stay on good terms and to avoid prosecution. And, of course, they were friends with William Stevenson, too. Now, Tying up some loose ends here, the British security coordination was able to penetrate the Italian, the Vichy French, and the Japanese embassies. They also penetrated the Japanese embassy because the embassy employed a Bosque janitor who was a Republican sympathizer. This janitor, a real working-class Bosque hero, got the Spanish cipher books for the British Security Council too. Let's talk about the Angleton mindset here. This is when we think about bong-rip-style double and triple agents, hidden agendas. Let's enter the wilderness of mirrors. 
William Stevenson's British security coordination ran double agents, right? Now, some people have described the use of double agents as the very essence of counterespionage. But the risks are very high, and it can be very tricky running a double agent. Now, what we're talking about is taking someone who's already engaged in espionage on the enemy's behalf and persuading or coercing them to keep their employment but transfer their allegiance to the other side. Now, the timing can be very complex, and often it has to be done during moments of particular stress or crisis for the double agent, the would-be double agent, but without overdoing it. And even afterwards, there's always the risk that the double agent either returns to their original master or never actually betrayed them in the first place. The double-double cross, also known as the triple agent, right? Still, if a double agent is created, they can be very valuable because they can do four separate things. First, they can give intelligence on other agents employed by the enemy, information on training, assignments, methods, attitudes, morale of the enemy, all of these things. Two, a double agent can reveal what the enemy was trying to learn in the first place. That alone can betray so much about what the enemy's strategic plans are. Third, double agents can, by virtue of their already being an enemy agent, thereby prevent the enemy from sending new, unknown agents into the field. Fourth, double agents can be used as a channel to convey strategic deceptive information, also known as disinformation, to the enemy. Now, dealing with double agents is usually very difficult because they work for two opposing intelligence services, and they may be privy to information their handlers don't have. They are also fully aware of their own value, and while some double agents are ideological, most are not. Most are motivated by money, since they've already proven themselves to be duplicitous in multiple ways. Now, at any given moment, there's always multiple cons occurring at once, and there's usually a high degree of ambiguity. H. Montgomery Hyde states that one of Stevenson's most important double agents working from New York City had to be given a luxurious penthouse apartment furnished with a famous and expensive French actress in order to cooperate. Now we're getting into some of how the sausage is made. To get that top intelligence, why sometimes you gotta buy some sex workers. But just remember what John Kiriakou said about that, that he believed that CIA agents would procure child prostitutes if their source asked for it. Just keep that in mind. So another problem with double agents is that they often end up having double the secret traffic, right? So, so double agents are often caught slightly more than regular secret agents, if only because they are getting double the secret traffic and double the secret activities, right? And when they're arrested, Say a double agent is arrested in the United States, who comes to their rescue? Does the country or service which originally sent them come rescue them? Or does the country that they switched to rescue them? And depending on a variety of factors, these calculations can sometimes result in them being discovered. As well, there can often be too many cooks in the kitchen. Sometimes agents from Agency A would spend time collecting intelligence on agents from Agency B. 
a more complex version of when the FBI, DEA, and local police all infiltrate the same clan meeting, only to find out that there are no non-informant clansmen they're spying on, which has happened before. A more common situation that comes up several times in this period was the FBI finding themselves monitoring someone who turned out to be an OSS agent. Separately, I, I have read a book that talks about a Cuban spy who was undercover in a Cuban-American exile group that was also doing drug trafficking, who was also working as an FBI informant. So you see how things can get very tangled very quickly. Now, no double agent can operate for that long by giving only disinformation. But this is a double bind, or this is a tricky situation, because giving real intelligence can literally be treasonous. And apart from that, sometimes it can be more damaging, it can sometimes be more damaging to just run a double agent than just burning the double agent in the first place. All of these factors have to be evaluated pretty much on a constant ongoing basis. Now, historically, according to British intelligence and their own records, the FBI was not very good at running double agents, especially not internationally. The FBI seemed constitutionally unwilling to allow any real intelligence to ever be leaked to the enemy. Later on, they seemed to become pretty adept at running domestic double agents, especially criminal informants. If you can call, say, whatever arrangement they had with Whitey Bulger a satisfactory arrangement, for example. But either way, during World War II, the FBI was usually running double agents with the British security coordination, which is a nice way of saying that they were letting British security coordination run double agents and providing backup for them and harvesting the intelligence. There are some stories told by the British security coordination of the FBI pissing off some of their double agents, turning them into triple agents. No one has ever accused the FBI of being too chill. Now, the Army's G2 military intelligence ran some double agents, but the OSS was the major player that started to run double agents in this time. Now, another irony about double agents is that their circumstances can often reveal their true nature. Just like how you might identify someone initially as an agent because they somehow have much more money than and live a lifestyle that they shouldn't be able to afford, this can sometimes also reveal a double agent status. Sometimes these situations can also become pretty complex. Like, in some countries, especially as the war progressed, the Germans would have a hard time getting funds to their agents to pay them. And the Germans would be unaware that those agents, that some of those agents had been turned into double agents and were therefore not actually hurting for funds. But the double agents would have to lie to their original handlers and pretend like they were broke and hurting for cash when they were not, and had to not tip their hands that they were not actually financially dependent on the funds. Things can get very, very complicated when you're a double agent, and if you mess up, it can mean your life. Now, towards the end of the war, Igor Guzenko, a cipher clerk for the Soviet embassy in Canada, he took a bunch of documents and defected. First, he went to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and they knew enough to bring in William Stevenson, who conducted the interrogations with Guzenko. 
Ultimately, Guzenko revealed a widespread and pretty high-level espionage program, involving both penetration into the Canadian nuclear program and a number of sleeper cells. He ended up testifying on TV wearing a spooky clan-looking hood, and he would go on to testify in over 20 trials. Some people point to the Guzenko affair as a triggering event for the Cold War, and William Stevenson was a player in that too. So the British security coordination more or less stopped operations after the war in Europe came to an end. Several of Stevenson's key men stayed in the United States and made their careers here, but most general staff was sent home. It was a skeleton crew that ran the Guzenko affair. Now, if you believe that the British decided to stop trying to drum up pro-British sentiments in the United States, then you would believe that the British security coordination was shut down in mid-1946. If not, then not. Either way, William Stevenson, in the course of running British security coordination, had spent a million dollars of his own fortune. As a reward for his services, he received what some call the honor of knighthood, at the hand of King George VI, and he received the Presidential Medal for Merit, which is America's highest honor for a civilian. Now, let's try to evaluate the British security coordination for a minute. William Stevenson said of his intelligence operations, As a whole, intelligence operations consist less of the blood-chilling adventures that we read about than of hard work, endless patience, highly developed technical skills, and infinitely careful and competent organization. War has become a thing of instantaneous combustion, engulfing civilian and soldier alike. Surely it is plain that against enemy attacks today, the first defense must be information, to find out when and where an aggressor intends to strike. That is the role of secret intelligence, and without it, all other means of defense could prove to be of sadly limited avail. Now, as always, it is hard to evaluate a secret intelligence operation because you end up relying on obvious external signifiers and the accounts of those involved. But, from what I can tell, BSC was a hyper-competent spy network which did do a lot of things extremely well. One additional way to judge an intelligence operation is by its people, and British security coordination had quite an alumni for good or bad. Now, in going through the alumni, from what I can tell, there are a couple camps, and I made an informal taxonomy. There's the authors, the weirdos, the traders, the academics, the businessmen, and a special catch-all category. Let's go through them. So, in the authors category, there, of course, is Ian Fleming, who obviously used his work at British Security Coordination as an inspiration for his James Bond novels. There's also Roald Dahl, the famous children's book author. I haven't examined any of his work to see if there are any spy resonances, but like, if you can think of any, hit me up. Tell me. I think I've only read maybe James and the Giant Peach, and I don't really remember it. But I think it's interesting that it seems like literally every British children's literature author was an intelligence officer. That should perhaps give us pause. Now, the next category of BSC alumni include the weirdos. Including Dorothy McLean, she went on to work with what she called devas, which is a Sanskrit term often used in theosophical circles 
to represent any intelligences that oversee the natural world, sometimes referred to as nature spirits, solar angels, spirits, devils, elementals. There's a crossover with fairies. You know, normal things you get into after being a spy. So Dorothy McLean went on to found the Findhorn Foundation with Peter and Eileen Caddy. Both of them were involved in the Rosicrucian and Theosophical movements. The Findhorn Foundation is the legal name for a commune in Scotland that started out as a UFO cult. The Findhorn Foundation has been called the Vatican of the New Age movement, and as we see from its earliest inception, it was in bed with British intelligence. Now, another weirdo, perhaps less weird than Dorothy McLean, is Ivan T. Sanderson, who is considered one of the founding fathers of cryptozoology. Sanderson was also a Fortean, which is to say an enthusiast of Charles Fort's writing about fantastical and esoteric subjects of paranormal significance. So we see that from its earliest modern inception, cryptozoology was in bed with British intelligence. Next, there are the traitors, which, as far as I can tell, include Cedric Belfridge, who was revealed by the Venona Project to have been a Soviet agent. Belfridge joined the CPUSA. He started the National Guardian newspaper. He was forced to testify before HUAC, the House of Un-American Activities Committee, and he was eventually deported back to Great Britain, but he then chose to settle in Mexico in the 1960s. Real Jimmy Fallon Gong heads might remember my thread about Marilyn Monroe and her weird connections. Cedric Belfridge was in that community of Silver Spoon Red expats in Mexico at that time. Now, sometimes Americans freak out at how the British interacted with communism and therefore assume that communism is a British plot, or that the British are secretly communist, or whatever. Now, as you might imagine, I think that reality is a lot murkier than simple answers like that. There is the distinct possibility that Belfridge was not a traitor and was acting as a double agent and or British spy in the communist movement the entire time, but probably less to foster communism in the U.S. and Mexico, and probably more likely to flush out and track communists. Now, another probable traitor was Dick Ellis, who is said to have been selling information to the Nazis and the Soviets. One British newspaper said he sold vast quantities of information. Now, it's not a hard and fast rule, but remember, Britain has very strict libel laws, and they have the Official Secrets Act. So if a British newspaper publishes a claim like that, it's probably true, or at least true in a narrow sense. As always, there's the possibility that he was acting as a double agent, or something along those lines. But Margaret Thatcher refused to confirm or deny the allegation, so draw your own conclusions. How they're handled, and how harshly they're pilloried in the press, often can often reflect their status as spies. Although I don't think he would call himself a traitor, then there's the curious case of Alexander Halpern, who is a Russian, and he was originally a Menshevik, and an ex-Freemason, he switched to work for British intelligence and worked at British security coordination. Now, 
That's at least three types of betrayal, which is pretty psychological. Then there were some notable academics like Gilbert Hyatt, who became a pretty notable professor of Greek and Latin at Columbia University. There was Herbert Seichel, a statistician who made advances on Gaussian distribution and pioneered the field of geostatistics. Then there were successful businessmen like David Ogilvy, who went on to become an, a successful advertising executive. There was Eric Moschwitz, who went on to become a television executive. Like I mentioned before, he helped create Doctor Who. In the catch-all category, there's Betty Thorpe, who had the codename Cynthia. She's the woman who slept her way through several embassies and got all of the intelligence. Now, <laughs> her husband killed himself in 1945. Perhaps that's a sign of the human toll of this type of work. But Cynthia, or Betty Thorpe, I should say, she went on to marry one of the French diplomats that she seduced and they lived, presumably happy, together in a literal castle in France for the rest of her life. Probably one of the most interesting guys in the alumni is John Arthur Reed Pepper, perhaps well known by his moniker, Sergeant Pepper. That's right, the guy that the Beatles talked about in several songs and who has a whole album named after him. He appears on the album cover, along with Aleister Crowley and many others. Just try to find information about him online. Now, if you look deep within your heart, and you reflect, then you might have ears to hear what I'm about to say. That's right, Sergeant Pepper was the Beatles' handler, as the Beatles were an intelligence operation. Do not DM me, I will not be reading replies. Finally, it's probably time to discuss H. Montgomery Hyde, the author of Room 3603. He was from Ulster, Ireland, from a family that advocated for Protestant home rule. His family would even get involved in the 1914 Larn gun-running operation to arm the Ulster Volunteer Forces to get a little sense of where he was coming from. Now, later on, Hyde would be legal counsel for the British Lion Film Corporation, and he would write four separate books on Oscar Wilde. He also wrote a book called A History of Pornography. He also wrote a book called The Other Love, a historical and contemporary survey of homosexuality in Britain. He also wrote a book on Lawrence of Arabia, as well as a number of books on espionage. Hyde entered Parliament as an MP for the Ulster Unionist Party, where he served for nine years, before he was deselected by his party, after he advocated in favor of the decriminalization of homosexuality. He was known as the most vocal critic out of all of the MPs about the 1950 homosexual reform law, in that he was supporting it. And, to be fair, he also opposed capital punishment. Now, there is something deeply funny about being the MP for basically a raving fascist party, only to be kicked out for talking too much about your pet issue of homosexuality. Which is not to say that he was not on the right side of history on that one issue, if literally nothing else. 
Oh, and did I mention that Hyde was married several times but had no children? Moving on. The CIA historian Thomas F. Troy has argued, The BSC was not just an extension of SIS, which is to say MI6, but was in fact a service which integrated SIS, SOE, censorship, codes and ciphers, security, communications, in fact nine secret distinct organizations, but in the Western Hemisphere, Stevenson ran them all. Another person who spoke highly of Stevenson was David Bruce, U.S. Ambassador to Great Britain, who said, His American friend, the late General William J. Donovan, did not exaggerate when he said, that British security coordination was built from nothing into the greatest integrated secret intelligence and operations organization that has ever existed. Ernest Cunio, FDR's man, said, If it had not been for Stevenson and his organization in the USA, there would have been many more gold star mothers in America at the end of the war. That might be true. But then again, there might not have been any gold star mothers if the U.S. had not entered the war at all. Now, I'm not going to weigh the pros and cons of the U.S. getting involved in World War II, but let's not pretend that U.S. involvement was a done deal. William Stevenson's many, many psychological operations against the U.S. public itself showed that to be the case. In the 1960s, CIA analysts wrote a report of their study of the BSC. What did they say? We don't know. The report is classified. After the war and a few remaining issues, Stevenson decided to move to Jamaica to relax. And he bought an estate at Hillotown, overlooking Montego Bay, where he lived near Lord Beaverbrook, Sir William Wiseman, Noel Coward, <laughs> Noel Coward, and Ian Fleming all of whom acquired estates on Jamaica's North Shore. As you might imagine, Stevenson was pretty burnt out from the war, so he shifted into island time for a while before getting back into business. And oh, how he got back into business. Now I know what you're thinking. Rich white man moving to Jamaica to live in luxury? The optics are not great. But... Lest you think that William Stevenson is not the type of man to give back to Jamaica, why, he was asked by the governor of Jamaica, Sir John Huggins, to help the island utilize its rich local resources of limestone and gypsum. They wanted to make it unnecessary for the Jamaicans to import cement from England. Stevenson immediately agreed. Out of the goodness of his heart, he constructed the Caribbean Cement Company, ensuring that Jamaica had its own cement, and of course that he would get paid doing it. You know, to help Jamaica. Stevenson's next business ventures were even crazier, but that's for next episode. So, we're finally done with the British security coordination, but we are not quite yet done with William Stevenson himself. But what lessons can we learn from today? We saw how Stevenson, like every successful spymaster, cultivated close personal friendships with journalists, and there is no reason to think that it, that that isn't still happening today. And some of those journalists were basically running blackmail intelligence rings in close proximity to J. Edgar Hoover. Then we covered how complicated counterintelligence can get with a wide variety of inputs and outputs, 
ambiguity, deceit, smoke and mirrors. It's like playing a game of mafia or werewolf, but for years on end, with paperwork, and you might be murdered. But day to day, it's a lot of low pressure tension and boredom. No wonder most spies are sex freaks and alcoholics. Then we talked about Stevenson's Bastards, the long list of interesting characters that worked for British security coordination during the war. The BSC and its people influenced spy novels, obviously, but also children's literature, classical studies, the New Age movement, cryptozoology, advertising, and polling, statistics, Ulster politics, British politics in general, even the decriminalization of homosexuality, as well as the Beatles, and so much more. Also, I don't know how many pension heads I've got as listeners, but in the novel Gravity's Rainbow, there's a secret research group called Pisces, headquartered at a former insane asylum called the White Visitation. Now, the scenes in that novel involving Pisces set the stage for the grand mystery of the V2 rocket strikes in the rest of the book, right? And I know a lot of people suspect other sources of inspiration for Pisces. I can't help but think that the people at British Security Coordination also had a lot to do with it. And of course, there would be a large degree of overlap anyway, since British Security Coordination and SIS were fundamentally the same organization at the end of the day. All of this very pensionesque. And what are we to make of the traitors in the group? Some of them might have been double agents, some might not have been. But let's not forget that the Cambridge Five was operating around the same time, and the Cambridge Five completely incapacitated British intelligence for decades. Or so they say. Was the British security coordination also as thoroughly compromised? And... When I started this show, I promised to always clearly state when I was extrapolating and when I was relying on facts. So I should probably backtrack and say that I do not know beyond a shadow of a doubt that John Arthur Reed Pepper was the Beatles' handler, though he was indisputably Sergeant Pepper. I just suspect this to be the case. I'm also going to extrapolate here for a minute, What we know about the British security coordination comes from rather limited sources of information. I suspect that the British security coordination also engaged in murder, drug smuggling, human trafficking, and blackmail. But we are not going to read about that in a history written by those involved. I know that sounds like a lot of accusations I'm leveling all at once at the very end of my series about the British security coordination. But why do I suspect this to be the case? Find out next week. And regarding sources today, I used Room 3603, as well as Agents of Influence. I also used the Spartacus educational website, as well as a lovely book called The Nazi Hydra in America. Thank you for listening. I'm happy to know that I have fans out there, program to chill, followers, might have to workshop a good term for fans of the show, but I'll think about it. Either way though, I need to be on my way to Montego Bay. See you next week, and God bless.